0: Good morning, welcome to our weekly Bible Talk. We've come here to Exodus chapter 15, so I'd encourage you to get your Bibles open. To quickly set the context, um, we've come to the event immediately after the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, I remind you of the big arc of the book of Exodus. The people of Israel are slaves in Egypt. God raises up Moses. He performs a number of plagues. Eventually, Pharaoh lets the people go. But as soon as they're a little bit out of Egypt, Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues them. Then, as we talked about in the last couple of Bible talks, this huge event in the history of redemption, the splitting of the Red Sea. God opens the Red Sea. The people of Israel walk through on dry land. They make it safely to the other side. The Egyptians pursue, and then the waters come crashing down in an act of God's judgment, uh, obliterating Pharaoh and his army. And now they are safe and sound on the other side of the Red Sea. And what is the very first thing that they do? They worship. We're going to talk in a minute about the appropriateness of that and how that applies to us today. But before we dive into Exodus 15, let's pray together. Pray with me. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way that it's the living, active word of God, for the way that through it we're made wise unto salvation. Uh, Lord, please help us to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We thank you for the way that the entire book is pointing us toward Jesus and his great work on the cross. And help us today to understand how this passage here in Exodus 15 points us to and prepares us for the coming of Jesus. For all of us, Lord, give us grace to embrace your word with faith that we might be doers of your word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Like we've been doing, I'm going to read verse by verse through the passage, make a few comments. Now this chapter is a little bit different in that it's almost a psalm. Um, If you have been following along with us in our studies through Exodus, uh, most of the book is narrative up to this point. Obviously later on there's going to be a whole bunch of laws, uh, like the second half of Exodus. This is almost like uh, the laws that are famous in Leviticus, but the first half is primarily narrative. You know, they went here and they did this, and they went there and they did that, and there was this plague and that plague. But this chapter is unique in that it's a song, largely, and it's, uh, again, similar to the Psalms that we look at in the Book of Psalms. So what we're going to do is we're going to just kind of walk through it verse by verse. I'll make some comments. I imagine we'll get through half of it today and then half of it next week. I mentioned this last time we were together, but my thought is that we'll conclude Exodus after ch- chapter 15, take a break, and then my plan is to move on to a New Testament epistle. Um, and I'm open to suggestions there. If you've got a suggestion as to which epistle you'd like to study, uh, you, you know, you don't really know much about, say, 2 Peter, or you really, you'd love to study Philemon or something like that, You know, I'm just pitching some ideas out there, feel free to leave comments on our Facebook page or on the Sermon Audio page. Uh, I want to do these Bible talks to help you understand God's Word. So if there's a particular epistle epistle that you're interested in. The epistles, by the way, are the letters. Uh, Paul wrote a bunch of epistles, but also Peter and John and whoever wrote Hebrews. These are all epistles. So if there's one there that you're interested in, let me know uh, and I'll take into consideration. But that's the idea after Exodus 15. So chances are, We'll probably conclude chapter 15 next week and then with the craziness of Christmas and New Year's and whatnot, I imagine we'll be taking a couple of weeks off. But Lord willing, picking up in 2024, we'll pick up with one of these New Testament epistles. Um, I'm tempted to do Hebrews. Hebrews... Personally, I find Hebrews both very deep and profound, but also passages where I'm like, I have no idea what this passage is talking about. Uh, It's kind of a mixture there. So I'm kind of tempted to explore it with you, but uh, also a little bit intimidated because, again, there's a lot of it that I don't really know what it's talking about. But I don't know. Maybe, you know. again, if you think Hebrews would be helpful, let me know in the comments. But let's jump in here to Exodus 15 and see what the Lord has to say to us. Verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, pause there, (laughs) All right. the <laughs> I find it interesting that the very first thing they do after they get across the Red Sea is to sing God's praises and worship. Um, you know, you think about it. What would you know? Imagine you had just gone through this experience yourself. Uh, for probably several hours, they've been trudging along the banks of the Red Sea. They're looking at a wall of water on their right, a wall of water on their left. Uh, you know, they're not quite sure what's going to, going to happen to the Egyptians behind them. The pillar of cloud there is blocking the Egyptians from coming into the water. Uh, they finally get on the other side. Then they see all. All of these people just obliterated by the water, you know, because again, the Egyptians ran in. Uh, To me, I'd say, like, okay, let's take a breather. Everybody take, you know, uh, a good half hour and calm down and, you know, regain your senses and whatnot. And maybe they did some of that in between the lines, but nonetheless, the first thing that is stressed here in Exodus is that they gathered together in worship of God. How appropriate that is, if you think about it. I mean, we were created to worship. We were not created just to eat, drink, and be merry. We were not created just to uh, play video games or play tennis or whatever, watch football. Uh, We were created to worship God, and everything else finds its significance under that umbrella. Now, when you think about the storyline of Scripture, it's not surprising uh, when you you realize how often... Worship follows the great acts of God. God's great acts are designed to be worshiped. They're not, God is to be worshiped, but they're designed to provoke our worship. And just think with me about the kind of the storyline of Scripture. Where do we see God do something great and people respond in worship? It's actually all throughout the Bible. Uh, You know, just kind of thinking off the top of my head, uh, when Abraham, uh, he's about to sacrifice Isaac, and God saves Isaac and provides a lamb. What does Abraham and I, what do Abraham and Isaac do? They worship God through this animal sacrifice. Moving on, Jacob he sees this vision of the angels going up and down on you know Jacob's ladder. What does he do? Again, he forms an altar and he worships God. Uh, go back a little bit earlier. I skipped this one, but after Noah's flood, what does Noah do right after Noah's flood? Builds an altar and worships God. Uh, again, just kind of thinking off the top of my head. After Solomon builds the temple, what do they do? They have have this gigantic worship ceremony where they sing praises and they offer just loads and loads of goats and bulls and whatnot. They worship God. Uh, you fast forward to the uh, further into the future when Nehemiah finishes building the wall around Jerusalem. What do they do? Again, they have a giant worship service. They uh, have choirs and sacrifices and whatnot. This is the consistent pattern in Scripture. God's great works are there in part to provoke us to worship. And if we don't worship, there's something wrong with us. We're not really paying attention. We're not really thinking properly about what's going on. I mean, that's at the end of the day why God does what he does, to provoke us people to worship him. Now that raises an interesting question when we get to the New Testament. Uh, What's the greatest act of God's redemptive plan in the entire Bible, it's obviously the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, interestingly, when you get to the New Testament, in the book of Acts, what you don't see is really a kind of a worship gathering like you do in the Old Testament. Uh, Obviously the bulls and the goats we're not going to expect because those were fulfilled in Jesus. You know, kind of the shadows and the types that were in the sacrificial system, that passes away with Jesus. But at the same time, things like singing, hearing God's word, gathering with God's people, that continues on into the New Testament. But again, we don't see this grand worship gathering after Jesus' resurrection. Why is that? Well, a couple of things. First, I do think that that's designed to characterize the entirety of the Church Age. So whenever we gather, uh, say on Sundays, with our congregations, when we gather with our families and family worship, in a way, that's the proper response that ties to Jesus' death and resurrection, and that's to characterize the entirety of this age. That this is not just one-off event that's to take place after, you know, we got on the other side of the Red Sea, or just like the day after Jesus. Jesus. Jesus was raised. No, the entire church age now is to be one long time of worshiping and praising God. And that's why when you get into, say, Romans 12, it's very interesting. You know, if if you remember the flow of the book of Romans, Paul lays out the deep, rich theology of Romans. You know, we're all sinners and don't seek after God, but God has provided this new way of righteousness by faith in Jesus, this imputed righteousness that's given to us as a gift. Uh, Then in chapters 6, 7, and 8 he talks about how we can be transformed. We who are positionally righteous can become righteous in our daily lives. Uh, then in Romans he goes off on this really deep exploration of the future of Israel and how God's going to be faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then finally in chapter 1, what's the right response? I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So a few things here. What's the proper response? to the work of Jesus, the death and resurrection? Uh, yes, it's to worship God all throughout the church age, in our congregations, in our families, but also to worship God with our bodies every day and all day long. Uh, there is a sense in which worship in the New Testament sort of explodes to now include every area of life. Yes, we're to have our worship gatherings. Yes, there are to be Lord's Day services and family worship and you know, not diminishing any of that. But in addition to that, you should think of the way in which you speak to your spouse as a form of worship. Uh, not, not of your spouse but of the Lord. Uh, How you raise your kids as an act of worship. How you work your job as an act of worship. So it's almost as if worship becomes expanded to include absolutely everything and now we do everything for the glory of God. It's not just limited to animal sacrifices and going to the temple but now every aspect of my life can be an act of worship. And to tie this all together, if you look at the end of the book of Revelation, uh, what are the people of God doing in heaven forever? Uh, they're worshiping him who sits on the throne and the Lamb who was slain. And that's going on forever and ever, you know, praising God, singing, Holy, 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 etc. Uh, so all of this is the right response to God's great acts of redemption, and especially the work of Jesus. Now, hopefully, something I'm saying here is sort of perking your interest. You know, we really do, at the end of the day, exist for worship. And like I've said before, you can't help but worship something. Uh, It might be the Lord, hopefully it's the Lord, or it might be the NFL or Taylor Swift or your smartphone or pornography or whatever, but you can't avoid being a worshiper. And part of growing as a Christian is more and more learning to not worship dead idols and worship the true and living God. To put those dead idols to death and to not seek from them what only the true God can provide, and to find your joy, your satisfaction, your confidence, your hope in the true and living God. Again, that's the only appropriate response to God's great works of redemption. Anyway, let's pick up in verse 2, or pardon me, verse 1b. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, uh, he, and certainly he has. This includes the entirety of the Exodus event, You know, all those 10 plagues that probably took place over two years. Frogs and flies and gnats and blood and the death of the firstborn culminating in the crushing of Pharaoh, the crushing of the Thebe of the serpent in the water. He has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he is thrown into the sea. It's interesting that word thrown uh, that, that's not how we would imagine what took place. You know, again, they followed the people of Israel into the water, and yet God is so in control here. God is so bringing to pass what He has ordained that it's as if He Himself has thrown them into the sea, and it reminds you, doesn't you? Uh, it, it reminds me, at least, of earlier on in the book of Exodus. When the babies were to be born, what did Pharaoh say that they were supposed to do with the babies? They were supposed to throw them into the sea, or uh, to the uh, the, uh, Nile. Remember this? We talked about this many, many moons ago. But that's what Pharaoh said, when a baby's born you throw them into the sea. It's almost as if the Lord has brought back on the Egyptians the very punishment they threatened against the Hebrews. Uh, You're going to throw my children into the sea? I'm going to throw you and your children into the sea. Same word. Um, and And again, God God is not to be toyed with. God is not a God that you mess with. You mess with God and you will uh, live to regret that both in this life and in the life to come. Um, And we see that in Pharaoh but that pattern has been repeated Thousands of times throughout human history, people think they're great and mighty and they can oppose God, but God always opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Uh, So again, learn the lesson here. If you don't want to be thrown down, humbled, humble yourself before the Lord and come to Him for grace and mercy. He's glad to offer grace and mercy to the humble, uh, but to those who are proud and arrogant, He does crush them. Uh, You even see this pattern with Jesus. This is something that I've been thinking about in my own uh, life. Uh, Consistently, Jesus... So he gave law to the proud and grace to the humble. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. If somebody came to him proud in their sins, he would unleash the harshest rebukes on them. Um, and some of them are scary. You, you read the woes that Jesus unleashed on the Pharisees. I mean, you guys are twice the sons of hell. I mean, I mean, they're whitewashed tombs, and they're. I mean, he really unleashes on them. Why? Because they're proud in their sins. But to the humble, he's full of compassion, full of mercy. So the distinguishing Mark is not so much what's their external behavior, but what's the attitude of their heart. Are they humble in their sin and repentant, or are they proud in their sin? And uh, this, this is just who I am, take it or leave it. Obviously this applies to us today, because even today we've got humble, repentant sinners, and we've got proud, um, what's the word, uh, people that like Boast in their sin, sinners, um, and to, to we, we need to take a different attitude toward both of them. If somebody comes to you and says, you know, I, I am guilty of adultery, I want to repent, I want to put that sin to death, I want to like make this right, uh, they need grace and compassion. But if the same person says, yeah, I committed adultery, um, but you know, hey, boys will be boys, and I can't help myself, and you know, uh, we evolved from apes, and apes, you know, are quite uh, promiscuous anyway. Uh, to, to those people, we need to impress the press the law on them and say, no, listen, adultery is a great sin, and if you will. Not repent you will not inherit the kingdom of god obviously this applies to all manner of sin proud sinners need the law and need to be rebuked humbled sinners need words of comfort and assurance uh, you're smart people and you can apply what i'm talking about to all sorts of different areas of life but anyway where were we verse two the lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation this is my god and i will praise him my father's god and i will exalt him the only thing I'll comment on there is the idea that the Lord is Moses' father's God. Now, what's that really talking about? It's just talking about his biological father? It could. Uh, we know who his parents were. If I remember correctly, his mother's name is Jochebed. I can't remember his dad's name. Amram, I think. Uh, Amram and Jochebed, I think, were Moses' parents. And we have every reason to believe that they did know the Lord in a saving way. I mean, this is why they hid Moses early on. And you know, you can kind of connect the passages and this is why that they, they you know put the baby in the basket you know entrusted in him to the lord and whatnot but Additionally, this probably is hearkening back to the earlier fathers. The word here uh, is the same word from which we get our term patriarch. So this would have included Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So what Moses is doing, he's reminding the people of Israel of that biological, conne- biological connection in the Hebrews going back all the way to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though something like 400 years have passed, uh, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, keeps his promises and he's keeping his promises to us today. Now, I remind you, you, you're probably not a Jew, you know, a Hebrew. If you're, not, if you're of Hebrew descent, praise God, you're always welcome. Um, but most of us are Gentiles by descent. But like Galatians 3 talks about, we who share the faith of Abraham are also children of Abraham. Remember singing in children's church, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just pray. I remember as a kid thinking, like, that's kind of a strange song, especially, you know, I, I didn't think I was Hebrew or anything like that. But clearly, according to the Bible, there's Abraham's biological seed and the spiritual seed. Some of the biological seed became spiritual seed, but by virtue of our union with Jesus, we who believe are also Abraham's uh, spiritual seed. So we too can praise God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even if we're not biologically descended from them. What's even more importantly is that we're spiritually descended from them because again we share the faith of our father Abraham. Read Galatians 3. Galatians 3 personally helped me a lot in understanding this. How is it that we Gentiles become participants in the promises made to Abraham? Uh, carefully read Genesis, or, uh, Galatians 3 in a good translation and that hopefully can help you a lot. Verse 3, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Uh, Now, is that the way people typically think of the Lord today? Uh, We often talk about God as love and we think of God as a shepherd, all of which he is, but also he is a man of war. Uh, One of the themes that you'll get to in the Psalms is that the Lord is a warrior, kind of a scary guy at times, Um, which again, is a reminder to the proud, he is a man of war and he's coming after you. To the humble, he is a loving, tender shepherd. And the the, the difference all comes down to the posture of your heart. Uh, If you are proud in your sins, uh, you are to be terrified of God. But if you are repentant and humbled, uh, God will gladly receive you with open arms and welcome you into his family. Um, Again, let's let the Bible tell us what God is like and not so much our feelings or our traditions or our intuition. We live at a particular time in human history where we love the sort of soft, kind, like Santa Claus type God. I know I've talked about this a lot. Uh, But we hate the idea that God would ever judge or take life or do anything harsh. The problem with that is, first, it makes no sense at all. If God can heal me, uh, certainly He's also got the ability to allow the disease to come into my life in the first place. But at the same time, it's totally unbiblical because in the Bible, God is both saving the people of Israel out of Egypt and judging the uh, Hebrews, or uh, judging the Egyptians. And we've got to let the Bible again tell us what God is like. And clearly, He is a warrior. Verse 4 Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Uh, I won't pursue it for the sake of time, but very similar language to describe the way in which the, do you know the event I'm alluding to? Can you guess? The way in which the human race was drowned in and Noah's flood. Very similar terminology. And this is, again, something you'll see throughout scripture. Uh, There are repeated patterns in scripture, and that's on purpose. They're repeated, and they sort of intensify as they go. And again, the idea is that these patterns are repeating, repeating, until they climax in the person and work of Jesus, his death and resurrection on the cross. The Bible, to me, is such a wonderfully profound, beautiful book, no way that a bunch of people could have just cobbled this together, you know, a bunch of primitive shepherds and farmers and whatnot just throwing this together. And especially when you see these patterns reoccurring and growing in intensity until they climax in Jesus, to me, that's in, in, invincible proof that there is a divine author behind these things. Anyway, verse 6 Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Uh, And the only thing I'll say there is that there is a connection with God's right hand. It's this hand of power, but in the New Testament, where now that Jesus has ascended to heaven, where is now Jesus seated? He is seated at the right hand of God. So there is a connection here even with Jesus. It's as if God's right hand is so powerful that it's a person itself, and that person obviously is our Lord Jesus. Verse 7, In the greatness of your majesty you overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Hard not to hear allusions almost to hell and the way in which the wicked will be cast into hell, where they will be stubble. Which is really interesting because if you think about it, these guys stubble and you know being cast into fire. Uh, that, that's not what you would associate with drowning in the Red Sea. You know that, that water, water puts out fire, quenches fire. Uh, so perhaps Moses here is looking beyond what they experienced in the mere drowning and in the fact that they were cast into hell. Verse eight: At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a pile. The deep deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Uh, again, obviously, this is personifying what took place. Uh, the Lord does not have nostrils, uh, but nonetheless, the Lord is the one that did this. He caused those waters to stand, and then he caused the waters to fall. And that does it tells you so much about the Lord's control over nature. Uh, you know, don't imagine. Yes, there's a God in heaven, but the natural world, the ecosystem, just sort of functions without His control. Uh, that's not the way in which. God made the universe at all. God is intimately involved in everything. He's the one keeping the planets in their courses. He's the one that caused the sun to rise this morning. He'll cause the sun to set this afternoon. He's the one that's actively keeping my heart beating, your heart beating, your lungs pumping, my lungs pumping. He's actively, intimately involved in every detail of creation. We've got to basically fight this Uh, tendency toward deism. Deism is a big word. Um, It it would be a helpful one for you to be familiar with. It's this idea that yes, God created the world, but after that he took this kind of hands-off approach and things just sort of function like a watch and he doesn't really have anything to do with it. That's not at all what the Bible teaches about how God interacts with creation. God is just as active in creation as he was in Bible times. He's just as active sustaining things, uh, judging, blessing, uh, causing the rain to fall, answering prayers, just as active today as he was in Bible times. So uh, be aware of this tendency in the flesh that we have to become deists. To, to look at God basically as almost like a deadbeat dad. Yes, he created the universe, but then he took off and he's really not connected. Be aware of that and fight that and remind yourself every day that God is interacting with this world actively every single second. Anyway, verse nine. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. So here you, you, you sort of hear this Pride in their hearts. Ah, I'm going to get those, those filthy Hebrews. I'm going to take their stuff. They, they took our gold and silver. I'm going to get that back. Um, even though at the same time they're looking at this miracle that God's doing. I mean, it sort of shows you how irrational we can be in our sin. We can see a bona fide miracle taking place right before our eyes. You know, the walls of water on the right and on the left, the cloud, the Shekinah glory blocking them from going in. And yet they're still saying, I'm going to get my stuff back shows you how foolish we can be um you don't diminish the ability the flesh has to make you utterly foolish and to do totally unreasonable things you know haven't there been times in your life like that when you've done things that you look back later on in retrospect and you're like that was what what on earth was i thinking at that particular time uh that's what the flesh can do it can cloud your judgment lead you to do really really foolish things Uh, earlier we were talking about how could this smart person do this really really sinful thing The problem has nothing to do with intelligence. Uh, There are are hyper-geniuses that do some awful, gross, immoral things. If you know anything about the history of Germany before World War II, Germany before World War II had some of the most uh, shocking geniuses the world has ever seen You know, in the arts and in in, uh, music and whatnot. Incredible geniuses. And yet a lot of those people, due to peer pressure and whatnot, gave their support to the Nazis and went right along with the entire Nazi project. So never think that Intelligence will keep you from sin. Never think that intelligence alone will prevent you from making really foolish, sinful choices. The flesh is so seductive, it's so deluding, it, it can blind us. Uh, even, if we're, you know, even if we've got like an Einstein-level IQ, there's, there's really no connection there with our morality. Uh, we, we need what? We need God's Spirit illuminating us, convicting us, leading us to humble ourselves. And at the end of the day, what makes the difference is not intelligence, but is God's Spirit at work in your life. If he is, uh, you you will quickly humble yourself after your sin, even if you've got like a minimal intelligence. But if the sphere's not and and you're super genius, I mean, in in a way it's even more dangerous because you'll just think up fanciful justifications for your wickedness and and, and concoct these awful excuses for your sin, kind of like the Egyptians are doing here. Again, hopefully something I'm saying here is making sense. Verse 10, You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Well, I think we'll conclude with verse 11 and 12 this morning. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? You'll remember if you've been with us through our studies through Exodus that one of the things that God has been doing in the plagues is destroying the gods of Egypt. Remember this? Uh, Each of the plagues, it's so interesting, each of the plagues seems to be directed toward a specific Egyptian god. You know, they worshiped the Nile as a god, God turned the Nile into blood. They worshiped this god with a, a frog head, God, you know, brings all these frogs and then slays all these frogs they worship pharaoh as a god god kills pharaoh's firstborn then he kills pharaoh so one by one god is knocking down their gods and saying that they're nothing well here finally the uh israelites they get it and they say who is like you O lord among the gods uh no there is no god like you all the gods of this world are dead idols but you O lord are the true god and again, maybe for the sake of time, I won't pursue that. But that is another theme that you see throughout Scripture. Uh, God is again and again and again showing that the gods of this world are dead idols, but he alone is the Lord. Uh, the Baal, Remember the Elijah famous story where they got the two bulls and uh, you know the priests of Baal threw the water, or no, they danced around and cut themselves, but then uh, Elijah says, throw the water on. And uh, you, you know the story, I'm, I'm kind of butchering here a little bit. But what was the entire point? The point was to prove that the Lord he is God and that Baal is a dead nothing. Uh, Again, the ultimate expression of that is Jesus' death and resurrection. No other object, no other founder of a religion has died and then risen again. I know we've talked about this before, but pick any major religion, uh, their their founder is still dead in the ground. You've heard this before. You know, Muhammad's still dead, uh, Buddha's still dead, Krishna's still dead, uh, but Jesus is alive and that shows that he is the true and living God, whereas all these other gods are dead idols. Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in doing glorious deeds, doing wonders? And all of those wonders would include the plague. So so the wonders of God are not just sort of pleasant things we enjoy, you know, sunshine and flowers and rainbows and butterflies. Of course it includes that, but it also includes great acts of judgment. Never forget that. Part of the reason why that's important is because the cross is an act of judgment on Jesus for our sins. Verse 12, You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Now we're going to pause there because verses 13 and following I think actually become a prophecy of what is going to take place in the future years with the people of Israel. Uh, so maybe for this week, here's your Homer. For this week, read verses 13 through 18 and think about how are these verses prophesying in kind of a vague way what is going to take place under Moses' leadership as he leads them toward the people or toward the land of Israel. Lord willing, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, How might we pray this passage back to God in the time that we have remaining? Uh, I think maybe the big thing we should pray for today is, Lord, please show us your glory. That's what Moses is going to pray later on in this book. Lord, show us who you are really like. There's such an enormous temptation to make you into our image, to shape you as we want you to be. Our flesh wants to do that. Culture wants to do that. Certainly the devil wants to do that. Create a God different from the God who really is, uh, which at the end of the day, all that is is a form of idolatry. Idolatry is not only worshiping a false God, but it's taking the true God and sort of manipulating him like Plato and turning him into a God that he's not. So Lord, please help us to see you and to embrace you as you really are. This glorious God of both compassion and mercy, but also judgment and wrath of righteousness and grace. Lord, please help us to see you as you truly are and to embrace you by faith as you truly are Um, because, again, that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who both crushed Jesus for our sins on the cross but now offers salvation as a totally free gift to all who will call upon his name. I think that's going to be the stress of our prayer today. Let's pray and we'll be done. O Lord God, you alone are God. All the gods of this world are dead idols. You, O Lord, made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. You, O Lord, are a God of wonders who does amazing things that we cannot comprehend you did that through moses your servant you did that all throughout the bible and you did that ultimately in jesus death and resurrection we thank you for the way that you poured out your wrath on jesus so that we might be forgiven but we thank you also for raising him victoriously from the dead father please help us help all of us to understand who you are according to scripture and to embrace you with faith lord help us to fight against those temptations to shape you into our own image to make you a more Comfortable God, a God that a God that meets our lusts, who, who really appeals to our fleshly nature. Help us to fight that and to again embrace You as You truly are. Also, Lord, with that, give us opportunities to commend You to others. Give us evangelism opportunities, teaching opportunities. Maybe with our kids, our spouse, our coworkers. Give us opportunities to declare to the world who You are and Your great works. Also, Lord, make us people that worship. Like we talked about earlier, Your great works are designed to provoke worship. So please, in our Private lives and our families and our churches make us a worshiping people. We pray all this through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day.